Thanks for listening to the show. Join us online at playvolutionhq.com and learn how to support the show at explorationsearlylearning.com slash support. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Kick back, settle in, and let us fill your ear holes with early learning information, wisdom, and advice. And now, here's Heather and Jeff. Welcome to another episode of Renegade Rules. This is Jeff Johnson. I'm on the phone with Heather Shoemaker. Happy New Year. And we've got a special guest with us, Heather. Yes, we do. I'm delighted we have Michael Gramling with us. And I saw the title of his book, and I was so pleased um, that I just had to call him up and, and, and have a chance to talk. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, Heather. I'm very glad to be here. And uh, thank you, Jeff. Well, I'm glad you're here. So he's the, the um, author of The Great Disconnect in Early Childhood Education. What we know versus what we do. And this is something that I often talk to people when I'm speaking about early childhood education is how vast a chasm it is between what we know about early childhood brain development and what kids need versus what we're actually doing in classrooms and, and sometimes even in homes. So when I saw your title, I was just doing backflips because finally somebody else has that same idea. It is a pretty big disconnect. Well, let's let's yeah, well, dig into uh, it. Yeah. You know, um, can you yeah, just tell us a little bit about um, where where you came from and how you came up with this this um, this title to share with the world? Well, sure, yeah. Uh, I have a, a really long background in early childhood education uh, and also a uh, parent of five early children in early childhood. Um, and what I have seen happen over time is I've seen the experiences of children change pretty dramatically, um, particularly with the introduction of uh, what's known as accountability, uh, <laughs> micro-measuring what children can do do or the information that they know and sacrificing uh, experience uh, providing information rather than experience uh, and teaching language as if it were a subject to be taught one word at a time. These are some of the things that I've seen uh, happen more and more and more uh, in uh, pre-K and uh, Head Start and child care. So as I saw that Get worse and worse. I finally couldn't take it any longer, and I decided I had to write a book. <laughs> Good, couldn't take it any longer. I like that. Um, yeah, and I also thought your, you know, I have a copy of your book here, and your even your dedication of your book shows where you're coming from. I mean, you dedicate it to your five children, but it, you also say they've alternately validated and debunked every early childhood theory and approach to parenting you've ever. Encountered, and I think that that sh- that shows me that you're an adult who uh, listens to kids, observes them, and sometimes follows the lead of children rather than doing what we're supposed to. Yeah, I think that's right. And I really, when I think about that, I think about trying to help staff in particular and parents. Um, and it's 
really easy if all you do is write books and, and give lectures and, and don't get your hands right into the middle of it to um, have pat answers and uh, start telling yourself that there's just one thing that's the right way to do it. And um, I just wanted to acknowledge that every time you think you have it exactly right and know what to do for every child, then um, the child will show you that you're wrong. And so, so much of this is about uh, responsive practice, really, really getting to know each child and figuring out how to make that child um, that child feel like they belong in their classroom and, and feel loved. Right, right. So it's. I, I think sometimes we, we as adults get um, set in our ways or caught up in what the culture is telling us to do rather than acknowledging what's in our gut that treat the child as a as a human being worthy of respect and, and kind of go with the flow and see what works for that individual. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. I think that's exactly right. There is a, a one-size-fits-all approach uh, to early childhood education, which, um, you know, in the sort of because folks say to themselves, well, they'll be in kindergarten, which is still actually early childhood education, of course, and so we, it doesn't matter if we try to respond to them individually, so long as that we can somehow coax uh, behavior out of them that the kindergarten teacher and the first grade teacher are going to expect. And, you know, that's just sort of, one's um, contrary, that's, that's a pretty big disconnect. I mean, if, if that's what we were supposed to do, we wouldn't call it early childhood education. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say, well, you know, there needs to be a completely different approach at this age. Right. So one of the points you make in your book is that young children learn differently and their brains are wired differently. And in fact, they're wiring as we speak. Um, and so they need a different approach um, to learning than what's expected of an older, um, an older child who, who could be a student, whereas nowadays... Um, I think you said that four-year-olds are now treated as students, just shorter students, trying to mimic kindergartners who are trying to mimic first graders, and down it goes. And, and in my hometown, the public school system has a pre-K program that's even for two-and-a-half-year-olds, and it's very much a school structure, and the kids are called students at two-and-a-half. So it just keeps going younger and younger. You know, that really is a good point, and, and that's really one of the things I was actually working with a program that's uh, serving children zero to three. When I got off the phone to them, uh, I came out to live in my living room where some my best friends were gathered, and I said, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to write this book, because that's exactly what they were doing. They were trying to structure uh, the program for two-year-olds, and I'm afraid maybe even younger, around this step-by-step, teach-by-rote, teach-by-practice, teach one tiny objective at a time approach rather than understanding that we're really about brain development, you know, right. during these early years. Um, so, yeah, uh, it is really scary to me to see this keep this approach keep getting younger and younger. But it's so... It can't get too much younger. They'll be getting into the womb pretty soon. <laughs> well, well, there's there's some products out there that are trying to work on that, too. Um, but, Michael, the, that uh, that very organized, very structured, very one-sized-fit-all type of curriculum, it's very easy to measure outcomes with that kind of uh, uh, curriculum. So, of, of course, that's why we, we opt for it, except it ends up being that... 
the things that we're trying to measure often aren't the things that we should be caring about, and it's 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 just a hell of a mess, isn't it? Well, I think that's true. The um, what 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 we see is that uh, what's going on in child in uh, brain development and the ch- in the child's overall development are things that aren't easily measured because the child is taking in everything, every minute, mm-hmm. every day. And, and they're learning, we say, well, we really value critical thinking. Well, they are, they are, that the ability to think critically is a process. It takes a, it, it, it happens all at once and it happens gradually at the same time. There's not a way that you teach critical thinking. And language development is the same way. Children take in every word they hear, every minute of every day, and then as they hear more and more language, it builds context, and they become proficient communicators simply by hearing adults communicate. Um, so there's not a moment in time when you can measure and say, wow, this child can think critically now, or this child has communication skills. We can only, we can only measure whether they know a word, or there's a million words. So why do we try and measure one word? Um, mm-hmm. we really, you know, we have the slogan, one of the disconnects is, well, we really believe in process. Yeah, well, we believe it. <laughs> we know that it's process. We know the brain is undergoing some a pretty dramatic transformation over these first, <clears throat> excuse me, first five or six years. But the disconnect is that because we can't measure it, then we don't support that. Instead, we fall back on, on what is most easily measured rather than what is most important. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. You, you, you put your finger on it. You said, here's all these well-meaning adults who care about kids, teachers, parents, administrators. They all know better. They've all had some degree of learning about early childhood development and about brain research, and they know better, and yet they're doing the opposite. And it's sort of strange behavior. Um, what's, wh- why are we all doing the opposite? What's, what's your read on that? Uh, I see a lot of things. Uh, of course, the, the pressures of accountability, right? I mean, right now, early childhood programs are all publishing uh, graphs for the public to see in the name of transparency and accountability, and they're, they are proving that their children have accomplished a set of micro-steps. So it's very, very difficult to know that someone's going to come into your classroom and look to see how a child is uh, doing in a particular domain of development um, and not and not and, and uh, assess it with a standard instrument it's very difficult not to teach to the test it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's what elementary school teachers do it's what everyone does um, it's bad enough when you're teaching subjects but the things that are being measured you know social emotional development cognitive development language development those are not subjects to be taught those are things that develop based on the quality of the child's experiences which is the other sort of quandary uh, to the whole accountability and the measurement piece, is that it's very, very difficult to quantify an experience. Right? You, can't, you can't predict what a child is getting from the experience because they're getting so much more than you can measure or determine. And, and what are the benchmarks of a quality experience? Those are very also difficult to ascertain. Uh, so we're asking folks to be so much more open-ended, um, 
in, in what they do and, and have faith in the child. Have faith that we know that children who are exposed to rich language, who are exposed to rich experiences, do fine once they leave us and go to school because they had that exposure that, and all those uh, support for brain development that they're not getting in the one-size-fits-all, one-word at a time. Yeah. You know, I was struck by, um, I was struck in your book about um, the emphasis on teaching what I would call teaching the obvious. You know, people, adults who constantly (laughs) quiz children. Um, Maybe you're building blocks and the blocks happen to have um, an animal on them or an ABC on it and they, oh, what letter is this? And what color is your shirt? And (laughs) the endless quizzing that goes on of really dumb questions. Um, and books about shapes and books about colors. And uh, you were even mentioning identification of emotions by looking at pictures when it's all so much more part of daily life. And um, I don't remember ever being taught my colors because I went to a school that was um, full of free play and you just sort of encountered the world and eventually you knew what the colors were. It wasn't something that had to be taught. Um, And it seems as if there's a lot of emphasis on teaching things that really uh, either the kids already know or they'll figure it out pretty soon. Yeah, and that is the trouble. One of the troubles is that, A, we have a, a very limited uh, catalog of information we want to make sure the child gets. You know, uh, colors is one. You know, there's only eight crayons in the box, guys. You know, six or eight or ten shapes, 26 letters, four seasons, seven days, and you start with that limited catalog, and then you say, well, what is my strategy for teaching this limited catalog? And you're right. It's the daily, eternal, nonstop quiz. I feel sorry for children. Someone says, well, you know, what color is this crayon? And the child's thinking, oh, my God, it was blue yesterday. What is it today? You know, it's that, that sort of, uh, you know, uh, there's a story in there about a mom who keeps asking poor old Scotty his name, and uh, she calls up and ask a professional what to do about that because he doesn't always answer when she says, what's your name? And then, you know, the person replies, well, ma'am, uh, Scotty's terrified because you can't remember his name. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, they must really think some of us are pretty dumb. But you do hear it, not just in the classrooms, but, um, you know, when I visit people, just friends in their homes, there's a lot of quizzing by the parents to the child as if they think they won't figure this out or, or that it's important. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like blocks that have anything on them. Um, a lot of them are trying to teach uh, reading when you're just playing with blocks. You don't need all that. I think the more you have things printed on stuff, and um, the more adults will start quizzing the child instead of the other way around, having the child say, can you write something for me, where it's coming from their desire rather than from the adult, but I think a lot of parents feel that they're being good parents and interactive parents when they constantly quiz or interview their children, rather than just talk to them like a human being, or or just or just be be with them. I mean, we we feel like we've always got to be doing, 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 pushing, 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 rushing, 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 and just just being in a space with the child and and letting that that relationship unfold is. A valuable thing, but it's it's also kind of scary, uh, especially for for a lot of caregivers who really don't often have as much background in early childhood development as we might like them to have. 
Well, you know, that's really, really a good point. I think that, and it goes back to the whole deal, well, how do I measure being with someone? It's hard enough to measure, you know, what was the quality of that interaction. You know, we have some tools to try to do that. But, but how do I measure the quality of just being with someone, building the relationship, uh, and, and supporting? Because, you know, brain development is not just uh, acquiring information. There's so much more going on. And uh, a lot of being with kids is pretty good. But, again, how do I, you know, how do I go in and observe that and say, okay, you got a seven on that today? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, let me let me defend parents here for a minute because yeah, kids don't come with a manual, and when when we say what we know versus what we do do the we, you know, I'm referring to is, is uh, early childhood professionals, mm-hmm. and I think they often set the tone, and I think that that uh, I, I've seen uh, um, research that says that the parents' expectation of what the child needs uh, changes according to the kind of program the child is enrolled in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of my chapters says, where do rich kids go to school? <laughs> and, you know, if you look at things like Waldorf or, or uh, mini Montessori programs or programs that try to sort of use a uh, Reggio Emilia kind of model, um, those, those kids, they, yeah, they can just be. We can just talk. We can just do things and we can explore. And the parents that send those kids to their kind of schools, if you look what they're looking for, for their kids, that's what they're looking for, creativity and critical thinking, um, initiative, problem solving. But if you put a child in a program, supposedly run by professionals that know what they're doing, and and they send stuff home to the parent and says, we're working on the color blue this week, like you know, the color mm-hmm. blue is a unit that we have to study, something weird that we would never know unless we studied it. And, of course, parents pick up on that. And uh, and so they think, okay, well, we're going to, you know, keep asking them what color it is for the rest of the week. Um, mm-hmm. Or what letter, you know, especially around literacy. I think that's true in numeracy. Um, yeah, so you're and, saying and, that parents are really relying on uh, the information they get from, from the teachers and so on. And that they're they're susceptible in many ways. They they've never raised a child before, and they're relying on the experts. So, and and I think that's a very strong influence. But I think if the parents um, listen, they have another expert inside of them, which is their own memory of being a child, and their own gut instinct. Because if we cover that up too much, it's going to disappear. But if we stop and listen and remember, would I want to be you know, quizzed like this? Or would I want this? Would I want to be interrupted when I'm playing? Would I want... If we, if we think back to our own childhoods or just some common sense observation, really parents do know the answer. And, and, and sort of the cultural wars are clouding their thinking. If they just stop and give themselves a little bit of a breather. So I think sometimes we're, we're too susceptible as a as parents and as adults, to the peer pressure of the culture rather than listening to the child and listening to our own memories and our own instincts. Well, I, I agree, Heather, for us, uh, the, the three of us on this call right now, because we're, we're all kind of old and we actually had playful <laughs> childhoods. But I, I've, I've met a, a lot of young parents over the last couple of years who don't, don't remember play the way we remember it. And so this is almost becoming a generational problem now, isn't it? 
I think in many yeah, ways I, it is the grandparents now who remember a playful childhood and can introduce that and yeah. can allay the fears of the, the current parents. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And it's, um, it's, it's you know, sometimes when I, when I talk to parents uh, and, and, to, and to the staff, I just try to say, you know, if you really want to know what's best for your child, how about just relax? Just relax and enjoy it. <laughs> just, just if you if you just will have fun being around them and treasure it, then 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 you would you know they would do so much better and and you would be so less anxious. That that's what I see. An awful lot of anxiety. Yeah. Is my child going to be ready? Is my child going to be ready? Yeah, it's just um, it's it's just a matter of, of of trying to convince people that we can slow down a little bit. That's the, the age compression is 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 a real problem, and if we can just like you say, chill out a little bit and enjoy those moments, everything gets a lot easier, a lot less anxious. Yeah, and sometimes even just giving concrete examples can really help jar people out of their their groupthink. For example, you know, pushing kids to be ready earlier and earlier on different. Uh, milestones, um, you know, kids, a 10-year-old can drive a car, but we don't necessarily want them to. You know, earlier is not always better. And a 12-year-old girl can get pregnant. We don't necessarily think that's the best. I, I use, cha- when, I talk about, the child. when I talk about this in prison. things they can do at early ages. So, you know, that can help jolt people into thinking, yeah, okay, earlier is not always better in all cases. The example I use in my presentations is, is chainsaws. You could give an 18-month-old a chainsaw, but it's probably not a good idea in most situations. You know, that's so right. And and you think about the what you often hear, as uh, we said at the beginning of this, you know, well, we have to get them ready for what's next. Well, imagine sending your child to a, uh infant program, six weeks old, and the staff thinks, well, you know... And, by next year, they, they're going to have to know how to eat solid food. We better start feeding them solid food right now, mm-hmm. um, right? And they don't have teeth. Uh, so that, that, uh, that taking into account even the child's developmental ability to do the things that we're pushing them so hard to do, I think especially around social-emotional kinds of behaviors, uh, they're just not ready for it. And uh, what you get is frustration on the part of the adult and, uh, and the child and the child feeling like they're not capable um, when it's just time isn't there yet. It's not yet. It's not time to turn the chainsaw on or drive the car. Yeah, it could be. It could be really <laughs> stressful in that classroom when you're expecting that three and a half year old to sit still through circle time when that three and a half year old physically cannot be still. I mean, and th- those things are happening every day, times a thousand across the country. Yeah, that's right, and, and and so much of that is a child's disposition, uh, the the ability to sit. I think varies so widely among individuals, and you know you see adults who can't sit still. Yeah, um, right. And the goal of life is not actually to sit still. <laughs> sit still. I mean, I, I keep reading in the New York Times how sitting can kill you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I sit a lot for my job. You know, I'm writing books. I'm sitting down, but sitting is actually quite dangerous to your health. Uh, hey, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. You know what, guys? Um, it's time. Let's wrap this episode up. Stand up. Take a stretch break, and then uh, we'll be back with uh, with Michael in a in a in a in the next episode where he's going to explain how we how we fix this disconnect. He's gonna he's gonna give us, I'm sure, uh, some 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 tips and ideas for how we can make things better. Um, sound good? Sounds great. 
Excellent. This yeah, is, that sounds great to me. Thanks. This has been the child care. No, this hasn't been the child care. My gosh, I forget which podcast I'm on. This has been Renegade Rules. We're back in a week with another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Music by Alexander Shoemaker. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.